Welcome to the ministry of the International Christian Assembly in Southeast Spain. We are here for the purpose of worshipping God and reaching others with love. We pray that as you listen, you will be inspired and challenged in your walk with God. Well, good morning. I am Robert Kelly. That is my wife, Cheryl. She is um, my wife now of uh, 32 years. Yeah, we got married when we were five. Uh, it was an arranged marriage thing. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, but uh, yep, 32 years. And uh, we have some pictures, too, I, that I have just so you kind of get a little context. Uh, the first is, uh, let's see, yep, there's my family. And so uh, this guy here is uh, with the Arizona. That's my son, oldest son, Joel. And then uh, my middle guy, that's Logan. And that is my new daughter-in-law a year now. They just got married a year or so ago. And that's uh, my youngest son. Uh, he is uh, now, this is uh, Joel, Logan, and Vaughn. And then Melani is uh, our new daughter. And uh, yeah, they're like our pride and joy. We really do adore them. And uh, they are, uh, only one of them is going to be able to join us. So you will meet uh, Logan and his wife. The other two uh, weren't able to travel. In fact, they're very upset about it. Uh, and uh, we told them it's really unfortunate. One day maybe it'll happen in the future for them. Uh, but uh, that is now two trips to Europe we took without them. And um, yeah, they're not thrilled about that. That's unfortunate. But we also have some others. These are uh, the rest of my family, if you can call them that. Uh, we like them a lot. Uh, the white one here on the right, this one's she's great. We have two dogs. One, one is really, really great. Uh, the other one, not so much. She's kind of a, she's kind of a beast. Uh, but uh, uh, but uh, we do love our, our animals. And we noticed that this is a big dog community out here. And so recently I saw a statistic. It said that uh, Christians who are pet owners, that like some 70-something percent of them who have pets have dogs, not cats. I'm just saying. I don't know what that says. But somehow when God's people choose pets... They pick dogs. So if you're a cat person here, I'm, I'm sorry. We can talk afterwards and maybe pray uh, and just see what it is. It could be a mission. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's a mission to cats. Uh, I, could, I could be sold on that. Uh, but uh, we also have some pictures of some of our church family. We're from a church in New York. Uh, this is uh, a church called Beacon Church. Uh, Beacon as in like the lighthouse uh, beacon. And um, it, the church itself is, uh, I guess, about 16 years old. We started the church as a church plant. It was uh, me and uh, my wife and two friends who uh, decided uh, that we were going to be, we were part of another church. And uh, there are very few churches like out here, very few churches in our area that uh, will be able to teach the Bible and worship God in the way that uh, we all uh, very much love and appreciate, and so we thought another congregation would be great. So we started in our basement, and then we were in a hotel, and then we ended up with a building, and then another building, and then uh, the church continued to grow and to be blessed, and uh, it has become uh, a really great uh, part of our lives and a huge uh, kind of a, uh, a, a part of a, a larger movement of churches uh, that we are very, very uh, excited about in New York. Uh, a lot of times people think nothing's going on in New York, and some days it feels like nothing is going on in New York in the spirit realm. And now we have dozens of churches throughout uh, our area of New York, which is Long Island, right outside of uh, the city, and uh, hundreds and thousands now 
uh, Christ followers who are very, very excited about reaching uh, New York. And so there's some other pictures as well. You can see a very, uh, it's a very uh, ethnically and age different, uh, you know, a lot of diversity in the church. I've got some other pictures as well, Gilda. You've got, yep, so there's some different folks. And this is just uh, kind of one of our social events that we had. We've got another picture coming up uh, just to give you kind of a picture, a uh, little bit of of who some of them are. This is a, a trip, mission trip that we took to Mexico, and uh, we were able to take about 50 kids uh, over to Mexico. And uh, we, I'm already to three different missions trips, and this was with the crew that I was leading. And uh, in Mexico, we were able to support a school down there uh, that was doing uh, a whole lot of great work in the community among some very under-resourced uh, people. And one of the most exciting things that's been going on at our church and I know that's a similar thing to, as many of you would feel, is a whole new generation of Christ followers are rising up. And uh, young people, a lot of teenagers, and uh, we're starting to see that uh, it isn't uh, just right that the, the church is, seems to be in one community, it seems to be one generation away uh, from being gone. If, if, if it's us and there's no one that comes after us, then that is the end of our storyline, uh, end of our chapter there. And yet uh, the gates of hell will never stand against it. And so here's a whole lot of young people with us and uh, having just a great, great time uh, serving uh, God's people elsewhere in the world. And so I think those were it for my, my pictures. And uh, just a little way, by, by way of giving you some context about who we are. In the, and we know uh, the church here through Raphael, who knows it through Island Christian. An Island Christian Church, if some of you are familiar with that church, the new lead pastor there is Chris Coates. And so Chris is one of the people that started, Chris and Anya are, the, are one of the early couples that started the church with us. And so we've been friends now some, oh gosh, over 20-something years doing ministry together and uh, loved uh, to be able to partner up in, uh, in this way. Well, anyway, let me jump in here. We've got a, a lot of ground to cover and uh, I was thinking about uh, just how we interact with just books, right? Books in general, stories. And so it gets me to think, this is, this is Los Tres Mosqueteros. And so, uh, you know, this is just one of these great stories that we have so much uh, enjoyment from. But let me ask you, what is the most important page of this story or of any story? What do you think? When you're reading a book, am I allowed to ask you guys questions? Will you talk back to me? I don't, all right, I don't know. Just checking. You're over here nodding, so I'm going to come talk to you. Uh, no, no. And so, and, and so like, what, what's the most important page of a book? Is it the last page? First page. Get a fir anybody else will vote for first page? Does anybody want to vote for a different page? How much is the book? Yeah. What, is it like which book, right? Uh, could, you could say it could even depend on the book. Depend, you know, depends. But the first page, I got to be, if, if you don't get me in the first page or two, right? Anybody think the last page, the resolution, the last few chapters, the last chapter? Oh, yeah, Gilda's like, it's got to be, you know, it has to be the end, right? What about, you ever have like your favorite part of a story? Maybe that's the part. Maybe, you know, it's the big crisis or it's the great resolution or it's when you finally see who the hero is and, and they emerge. Or maybe it's the unlikely hero, right? But, but you, it, it's hard to imagine if all you had was a page. You wouldn't really get much from it, right? Like, so here, what was your name? Elaine, you like the first page? Yeah, here, you, you take the first page. 
Go ahead. You, you could have the first page. No, you could get the first page because that's all you got. And I, I think it's something. You, you want to run this back to Gilda? She wanted the last page. There's the last page of it. So, you know, we could, but you, so, so which is it? You want a storyline here? You want, you know, you want the drama? Can we give you, some of you are like, you have got to stop ripping that book. You're never actually going to get the whole of the story if you just keep damaging. This is nearly a violation. I see a couple of shocked faces out there. Like, you can't be ripping books. It's nearly a sacrilege. And so you start wondering, like, what page is the most important page of a book? Well, you know, the story is the whole of the story. And if you've got one page, I mean, it might be okay. You might not even know what the story is about. Read any one given page, and, and what are you going to know? How are you going to get to see the, 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 how it's going to resolve and how the tension and all the... And yet, so often in life, this is what we do. We think of this moment of our lives. We think of this page. We think of this story. But how can you know the great hardship of this page may not make any sense until you get all the way back here? It may make no sense whatsoever. You might have started it, and the storyline is small and meaningless. The first page might be like, you know, they have to, maybe sometimes people tell you, read a book, and, you know, you got to get past the first 10 pages. They'll sometimes tell you that, because, like, they're like, everyone knows the first 10 pages are lousy. And so, but you get to the, but you, but you need the whole of the story for the context. You need to see it all. And as you live longer, you get to see more and more of the pages of your story and how they are starting to get connected. But even the whole of your life isn't the whole of your story, not as followers of Jesus. There's a whole lot of other stuff going on. There are parts of, of a book that might be your chapter, but what if we find out that your chapter is just one in a whole long series? What if it isn't even a book that is the story? What if it's a, what if, what if it's a trilogy? What, you know, or if it's in Hollywood, they make trilogies into like 25 parts now. But, you know, like they just keep, they keep mad, same thing over and over and over. They keep extending it. Like maybe it's that. Maybe, you're, maybe what, what you're seeing here isn't even a page in a chapter. Maybe you have the whole of a chapter, but it isn't even a, a small part of the whole story. You see, this, this is what it's like when we're following Jesus. Because he asks us time and again to trust Right? What, what is having faith, right? We think of faith. Faith, what, what is faith? Faith is us trusting in what we don't see. We're not trusting that the story is going to work out the way we want it to. We're trusting that the one who's writing the story is trustworthy. That's, that's re really what it comes back to for us. And so we are looking at a, a book called uh, Ruth. I'm sure most of you are in some way familiar with it. And the book of Ruth gives us just a few pages. It's literally four chapters of the whole of the Bible. And in the book of Ruth, it gives us maybe a, a chapter or two in the overall story of just a couple of people. A guy, a couple guys, a, a, couple, of, a couple of women, a couple of widows, and and, and a couple kids, and we just get a few pages of their story. But the ones we get 
the pictures, they teach us that we can trust God in the face of unspeakable hardships. That we can actually trust in the author of the story to understand how it is that God wants us to live in this world. So let's open up, or you've got, I handed it out to you. If uh, we're going to be using, a, it's a, another translation, the New Living Translation. We put the whole of chapter one uh, on uh, your chairs and handed those out to you guys. And so we'll be in and out of the text here for a little bit. And so you can feel free to follow along. We're in Ruth chapter one. We're starting in verse one. It says, in the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. All right, we get the storyline. We get some of the main characters. Very exciting. It starts off good and strong as a story for us. We know that there's some tension here. There's a famine. Well, that's got to be, that's a problem. We got to do something about a famine. Uh, and we meet some characters. And at first you look at this and you go, all right, well, all right, we're, we're off to a good start. Elimelech, that's a pretty good name. It, it means that God is king. Like, all right, Elimelech, God is king. Yahweh is king. It's a, good, it's a good start. Naomi, her name means pleasantness. So this is like, it's a good, it's a nice start here. Like, you know, we got, we got Yahweh is king. And there, but there's a, there's a little bit of an issue here because what we want is we want everything to be great at the end of this story. But rarely do stories just run all the way through with wonderful storylines that we can all smile about. And already in the introduction, we already have things getting a little bit ominous. So it says, in the days when the judges ruled in Israel. Now, if you're familiar with your Bibles, which I have been told you are super familiar with your Bibles, so I have been told I could take some liberties with how knowledgeable you guys are. So I was told I should give you Bible quizzes and report back uh, to Raphael. Now, so, well, so think about this here. In the days when the judges ruled, the book of Judges has just happened. It's, it's an interesting, the way our Bibles are lined up, it just happened. The book of Judges starts pretty amazing. And then it collapses on itself. And we see some of the most horrible stories in the whole of the Bible at the end of the book of Judges. It is a horrific time in Israel. The time of the Judges is one of the most depressing reads of the whole Bible. Starts great, ends in absolute and utter catastrophe. So in the days when the judges ruled is not a great beginning. It's an ominous start. And there was a severe famine in the land. Famine's not a good thing. Not just because famine isn't a good thing. I mean, we all would understand that. It's not a good thing because of the scripture that we read in Deuteronomy. See, in the covenant promises of Yahweh, he said that famine was going to be the sign of judgment on you. That's what I'm going to do to you and to your people when you refuse to follow me and to love the way I've told you to love. 
and to be the kinds of people. He had just gone through this whole long list in Deuteronomy, and he gets to that last point, and he said, did you notice? I had never even noticed it until I was restudying this book. Did you notice where that Deuteronomy passage was read from geographically? It's Moab. Moses was giving them that in the, in the nation's territory of Moab. That's going to matter here as we get into our storyline because we, we find out that they went to Moab. So, wait a second. Why is it that they are leaving Israel? And you go, well, well it's the famine. Well, yes, but, but it's because... It's because of pleasantness. It's because they want, to get, they want to avoid the famine. They want to avoid the hardship. But in the context of Deuteronomy, they're trying to avoid God's judgment as well. They're leaving the Holy Land, right? Where are they from? They're from Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. Think of the irony. They're leaving the house of bread because there's no more bread. They're leaving the house of bread because of a famine. The word Bethlehem, that's what it means. It means house of bread. So they're here in the house of bread with no bread. And now they're leaving the nation of Israel. They're leaving their inheritance in order to go to the land of Moab. The first reference here to Moab, it says, what they'll say, it says they went to live for a while. But already by, by the last verse in that section, it says that they settled there. We know others who have done a similar thing, where they went to go live near the town and then they stayed in the town, if you think back to Lot's story. But here, you, wait a second, they went to go live there a little bit because they were hungry, but now we find out they're going to be there 10 years. They settled in good and comfy in the land of Moab, away from God's judgment. Now, this is some tricky stuff going on here. Because who doesn't want pleasantness? I mean, why do you come down and live here in a Mediterranean seaside town? Because of the foul weather. Like wherever you came from, it isn't as nice as this weather, at least for the last three months, two months. But why do we do this? Every single person takes every step, every decision we make is to maximize our pleasantness. Everything we do is to maximize our pleasure, to maximize our joy, to maximize our comfort. And you might say, no, 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 I don't do that. I go to the gym, I suffer at the gym. No, you go and you exercise because you think it is a better alternative than, the, than not exercising. So even the decision to exercise or to eat right Every step we take is toward our, what we perceive to be our greatest good, our greatest pleasure. That's what we all want. It's why every step we take is about pleasantness. It's about Naomi. It's about trying to craft a life for ourselves that is filled with this sort of pleasant. But what if that is not the life that God has in store for you. Hashtag blessed may not be on God's docket for you, at least not in the way you want it to be. We, all, we want a good life, 
but every single one of us will experience faith-shaking pages in our story. Every single one of us. Look at the next verse. How fast, right? This is like, this is like a, a Hollywood A-lister, right? You get the top billing of a person. So we already know the main characters, Elimelech, obviously, the sons. Sons are important. That's going to be a big part of the story, I'm sure. Yeah. Verse 3. Then Elimelech died. Wait, we just met him like two verses ago. And Naomi was left with her two sons. Well, at least she has her two sons. Well, the two sons married Moabite women. That can't be a good thing. Moabites, there's all sorts of trouble with the Moabites. We'll talk more about them over the next weeks, but that can't be a good thing. Israelites were forbidden to be taken foreign wives. Here he was marrying the Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah and the other a woman named Ruth. But about 10 years later, both Malon and Killian died. That left Naomi alone with her two sons, without her two sons or her husband. They just killed off the A-listers. Like in the first opening scenes of the movie, they're dead. What just happened? Like this is, we thought this was going to be a big budget Hollywood drama and now they're gone. And we're left with these, well, alone. We just have Naomi. They were together 10 years and she doesn't even have grandchildren. Like something's wrong here. Well, yes, because, because in actuality, this is coming from God. He left the house of bread to go to a country he should not be in. And his children got married off to women they should not have been with. Women who followed other gods. The god Chemosh was the god of the Moabites. And yes, Ruth is left entirely alone. And when this kind of a thing happens, when we have this surprising kind of a turn of events, these are the things that make us look in, into the world and go, man, things just aren't working out the way I had hoped. It's a page, and it's a harsh page, and it's not the story I would have written for myself. And this is how Naomi must be feeling. In fact, it has to be how her daughter-in-laws are feeling as well. This is not what I signed up for. All of these individual lives now are, are in ruins. Elimelech never should have left. Whose fault is it that Naomi finds herself stranded now in Moab without her sons? Elimelech. She can't even blame him. He's not even there. She can't even just keep... Maybe that's why he died. Maybe she was like, what are we doing here in Moab? Who knows? What was it? We don't know. We don't have any of these details. But we do know that their lives are an utter wreck. Moab, a widow, not just a widow. Think this through in, the, in that day and age and in that culture. To not have children, there is no greater shame or risk to a widow. No social net, no, no way of taking care of yourself. You are under the protection of the men in the community. And now she is in a foreign land alone with two girls. That's it. Her life's a wreck. Think of, think of Ruth. No one, not a father-in-law who would look after them, not even a husband who would give them kids. She's looking at Naomi and she knows that this is her future as well. This is where her story ends up. Hopeless times 
for hopeless people. Elimelech, a sinner. Naomi, some sort of a griper. Ruth, the marginalized outsider. And we respond to these harsh turn of events in our lives in all sorts of ways. This is, you, you, you can follow along in these verses. We're in verse 6. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed the people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughter-in-laws, they got ready to leave Moab to return to, their home, to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she sets out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her daughter-in-laws, go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husband and to me. You know, sometimes when life takes a hard turn, when it goes in the direction we don't know, this is actually what we do. Because we, we, we will respond to a harsh storyline very often by just using our own good reason. Naomi looks out over the situation and goes, clearly it is way better for you guys to go back to your home. Don't, don't come with me. Don't come to Israel. We don't know what waits us there. We don't know what happened to my land. We don't know what happened to our property. It's not like she'd been Instagramming her family over the last decade. She doesn't know what's going on. She doesn't know who's even alive anymore back in, in Bethlehem. And they left and went to Moab. How would they even be received when they get back? They're clearly under the, the heavy hand of God. Will the, will the people see that? Will they judge her for it? And these were terrible days in Israel. Terrible days. Would she even make it there? So she says, no, it's better for you. And this, we do this. We think through, we're like, how can I figure this thing out? How can I make it so that there is less pain and suffering in my life? and in the lives of the people I care about. Go back to your mother's homes. Look at the next verse, 9. May the Lord bless you with security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. Because sometimes we respond in ways that God doesn't want us to. She's now sending back two daughter, who, women who should have been daughters of Israel part of the inheritance of the covenant people and she's sending them back to the, the people of Moab to the people of, who serve the god Chemosh. Why? Does she know that that's what God wants? God wants to send these girls back so that they can serve the gods of the Moabites again? I mean that's what we often do, right? We often say there's, there's, there's something in here. We'll just figure out a good way to do it even if we're not so sure God wants it. We take a look. Verse 11, it says, Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' home, for I'm too old to marry again. And even if it were possible, and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. This is an interesting one, because here, we'll get into a lot of those details in future weeks. We're going to do the whole book of Ruth while I'm uh, with you guys. But there's a certain sense of despair that's setting in here. She's like, there's nothing left here. No hope for you. There's just desolation for me and for you. And when she says to them, I'm too old, then what? Can I still give? She's admitting that she's at the end of her rope. There is no more hope. And she's going to drag these girls along with her. No. Despair starts to set in when a new harsh storyline kicks up in our lives. 
Then she says, things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. How often do we do that? Life gets hard and we turn around and we largely blame God. But we don't blame him in the sense of saying, God, you must be doing something right and good here. Because in actuality, she is right. This is God's doing. The heavy hand of the Lord is upon her. But she blames God as if it's his fault, not her fault, or not Elimelech's fault, or not the fault of the people of Israel who created such an unjust society. But she turns and she blames, and so often we do this same exact thing. Things get heavy and we're like, why God? Why are you doing all of this? Rather than using this as a time to, to undo the false idols, the false gods that are in our own hearts. Look at the next verse. And then again, and, and again, they wept together. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. So often, when life takes a hard turn, we just, we come to our best common sense answer. In fact, we do this as Christians all the time. People come, we talk to them, we, we work through someone's tough situation. You know what we do? We give them, we give them good advice. You guys are you're smart people. You give them good advice. What if, they're not, what if they, they're not supposed to get good advice? What if they're supposed to get God advice? We give them good advice. We use our best brain power and we go, come on, this just makes sense. This is exactly what you should do. This would be the wise thing to do. Do you know how many times God has called us to do what would be seen as unwise things? And yet we do this. We say, no, 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 let's figure this out. Let's rationalize this. Let's, let's use our common sense, which she does. And then look at verse 16. Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. You know, we see Orpah, the other sister-in-law. Interesting thing about this, there's no indication in the text that she did anything wrong. There's no hint that she had somehow sinned. We get hints in other ways about Elimelech, even about Naomi, but not with the other sister. It actually seems like she picked a very reasonable course of action. There's nothing good for her in Israel. There is risk, there is danger. Go back and read the last couple chapters of Judges. They're horrible times to be a woman in Israel. Horrible times. She should go back and be with her family. You know why? She'll have a dad, and she'll have brothers, and she'll have a clan, and she'll have protection. 
and she'll have someone who, who's lobbying for her. And because she was a widow, it's not even like she, she'll be able to get remarried and she'll enter into another person's home and she'll probably have grandkids, kids and grandkids, and her storyline will be great. She'll be, she'll be writing a whole fun story that looks great and makes perfect sense and that you would recommend to your own grandkids, to your own friends. You would say, yeah, this, is, this makes sense. There's no indication that what Orpah did was wrong. And Ruth refuses to take that course of action. She refuses and she says to Naomi, your people will be my people, your God, my God. This is a rejection. She's reversing the whole storyline of Moab and her great, great, great grandmothers. We'll talk about them later, but, but she's reversing this whole story and she is clinging to Naomi, but not just Naomi, but to the God of Naomi. She says, your God, my God, your people, my people. She knows she is picking the way riskier route. She knows Naomi will be better off because of it. She knows that, that the God of Israel, something there matters. He can be trusted in some way. She isn't signing up because she thinks that she is going to get the hashtag blessed life. She's not following Naomi because her, her name means pleasant. But she recognizes that sometimes when life throws you a curveball, when you're going through a tough, difficult, challenging time, rather than doing all of these other coping mechanisms, every once in a great while, we double down with God. And we go all in. And we say, no, listen, this is what really does matter. Your people, my people, your God, my God, this is my story. However it plays out, that is my next chapter. Naomi finally yields. She finally concedes. She decides to return home to Bethlehem. Ruth insists. And this makes absolutely no sense from the outside. And it makes perfect sense when you know what it's like to walk with Jesus. There's no common sense here at, ever, at all, whatsoever. But, but Ruth picks this act of self-sacrificing love. That's the word that's later used to describe her. She's this perfect picture of love, of loyalty, of chesed in the Old Testament, that that promise of God's faithful love. Ruth is showing that to Naomi. And as she is beginning to write the next chapter of her story, look, look how this storyline here comes to a close. This is act one, you could say, of the, of the story of Ruth. Verse 22 saying, So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. That's what's about to happen. But remember in verse 20 or in verse 19 what the people said and what Naomi, how Naomi responded. Verse 19, the two of them continued on their journey. They came to Bethlehem. The entire town was abuzz, excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The women asked. Don't call me pleasant. She responded. Instead, call me bitter. 
for the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi? Why call me pleasant when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? Think this through here with me for a moment. Naomi gets back home. She says, I'm empty. If you notice, she uses four, she, she references God four times. She says, the Lord, and then she says, the Almighty, and then she says, the Almighty, and then she says, the Lord. This is a little chiastic structure in Hebrew. And she says, Yahweh, Shaddai, or El Shaddai, El Shaddai, and Yahweh. So she's highlighting that it's Yahweh, but she's highlighting particularly that he is the Almighty, El Shaddai. That is the, the name that God gave to himself, the title he gave when he was promising covenant blessings. He is the Almighty. When he does that, when he says to Abraham, I am Yahweh El Shaddai, when he says that to, to Abraham, he promises him children. He promises him offspring. Ruth is, she's doubling down, but in the other direction. She's like, really? El Shaddai? Look, I come back with nothing. I come back without a husband. I come back without kids. I went away full. I came back empty. She went away to get food to, be fit, to fill her belly, but she came back empty in, in a far deeper and worse way. But did she come back empty? It's all she could see, and I certainly understand why. This kind of heartache and misery, it's hard to see through it. It's hard to understand. It's hard to, to get. It's, you're, she's reading a couple of, of pages in her story right now, and she can't see the whole of it. In fact, we never can see the whole of it. We just have to trust that something else is coming down in another page, in another chapter, maybe even in another installment of the series. And Naomi, she says, I went away full. I came back empty. But the writer here, the narrator, he tips us off that she's not coming back empty. Right? It says here, verse 22, that Naomi returned from Moab. That word is used like a dozen times in this chapter. Return, to turn. Usually it's turning away, doing the wrong thing. And this time she returns to Bethlehem. She's returning to the house of bread. And then she's not alone. She has her daughter-in-law, Ruth. You go, yeah, but it's just a Moabitess woman. Yeah, the book is named after. So that's a hint as to where we're going with the whole of the story here. We're going to find out later that Ruth is better than seven sons to anyone. She's more valuable and more important. And in the storyline, she becomes unbelievably essential. Ruth is hard... Ruth is hardly someone to forget when you talk about coming home empty. You're not empty. You're returning. And you're coming with Naomi. And look at that last little hint, the first really good news in the whole of this story, besides Ruth's declaration of her love. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring as the beginning, at the beginning of the barley harvest. At the beginning of the barley harvest. Wait a second. There's bread again in the house of bread. There's bread again in the house of bread. This is a deeply hopeful moment. Something is happening. Why is there bread again in the house of bread? What happened? 
Did, did the promises of Deuteronomy, did the curses of Deuteronomy, or is something going on? Is God changing his mind in the way he interacts with his people? We don't know yet. That's, that's going to be for next week. We don't know that yet. But what we do know is that there is now bread. There's so much here for, for Naomi not to be bitter about. So much for her to hope in, so much for her to trust in. And listen, the reality is your suffering and your heartache, they are vitally important to God in his plans for you and this world. We suffer for all sorts of reasons. And not all of them are to be fled from. We're not supposed to be looking at these heartaches and thinking to ourselves, God doesn't love me anymore. The fact that you have heartache might very well be because of God's great love and devotion to your storyline. Because what he's doing now in it is for a greater story later. Yes, but I can't see it now. That's right. You only see a page or two of your story. In fact, you really only see a paragraph or a few words when you're in deep pain, when you experience great loss. But God has still allowed it. And no matter what we say about the circumstances and why all of this happened and whose fault it was, and, and, and there's plenty of blame to go around in this whole story, plenty of blame to go around, we still know that in the end God allowed it, which means we can still trust that he's doing something in it. And at first you think, wait, this is, this is terrible news. God's, God's allowing these things to happen. He might even be bringing these things. He said he would bring famine and heartache and destruction and he would remove our offspring and all of these horrible curses that come from Deuteronomy. And at first you go, that's really bad news that God would play that kind of a game with us. I thought he promised us health, wealth, and prosperity. He promised you eternity with himself. And how he gets you there is his call. And this is a hard truth. And at first you go, I don't know that I like a God who can do that sort of thing. It's, read the first half. That makes you happy of Deuteronomy. That's, read the first few verses. Blessing and blessing. Yay. I want to be hashtag blessed. And God's like, the way we get there might not be what you expected. God's up there playing three-dimensional chess. We're playing checkers. He sees the whole thing different. He's writing a much richer story. There was a study done by researchers at the University of California in Berkeley, and they had an amoeba. And they took an amoeba, one of these little single-cellish kind of organisms, and they gave it the perfect amoeba life. Whatever an amoeba would need. Right? So the food and whatever nourishment, whatever light, I don't know what amoebas need. I'm totally, I have no idea what they did. They're giving it the perfect amoeba life. And they watched what happened. Can you imagine what would happen if you gave an amoeba the perfect amoeba life? It died. Its outer cellular structures failed. We've heard of this sort of thing happening before. They made this giant geodome in the desert where they had like a perfect environment and they had fruit trees and people were living in there and they created this cool little ecosystem and the fruit kept falling off the trees before it would go ripe. And they figured out why. No wind. Nothing was beating up the trees. They needed, they needed the challenges 
so it could do what it was meant to do. The suffering and the hardship, they shape us and they form us into the women and the men that we need to be to do what God has given us to do. Because suffering will refine us. And in those moments, God, he takes the lesser dreams of our hearts and he tears them down. He says, you think that hashtag blessed means this and that and the other thing, and it means the family, and it means the grandkids. As long as I, you know, we say, everybody in the United States says this, as long as I have my health, I'm good. As long as I, Christians, they say this all the time, as long as I have my health. Yeah, I don't know what saying that you guys have that would be like that or similar if people do that. You mean your health like Job had his health? God gets to play by an entirely different set of rules. He doesn't have to give you long life, health, children, grandchildren. He's allowed to have your kids go wayward. He's allowed to cause financial distress. And what he does in these moments is so special. He tears down our lesser dreams. He's tearing down all the things that distract us from him. He's tearing down the false gods. He's tearing down the false idols. And he is giving to us something so much better. Access to his presence. Dependence upon him. They're suffering. They're in hardship. They should be running to the house of bread. And fortunately, Naomi is finding her way there. Your whole life is this multi-book epic drama that God is, is writing each day of your life and he's weaving it in with all of these other incredible narratives. He's created this whole universe, the story of you and of humanity and, and the role that, that the Redeemer has in it and our Savior does in it. And he's weaving all of these things together and we just simply can't see all of it. And if we did see all of it, you know we would trust him. If we saw the whole of it and we saw how every single pain, not a single one is going to be wasted in God's economy. All things work out for those who trust him, follow him, call him. They work out in the way that God intended. They don't work out the way we intend. Unless, of course, your intention is more and more in line with what God wants for you in this world. Our lesser dreams have to be shattered so that we can have an encounter with God because that's what we truly need. That's what the truly blessed life is going to look like, to know and to love him despite our circumstances. Your life matters. Your hardships matter. Your storyline matters. The whole book of Judges, this big epic narrative of nations and wars. And it ends and starts with the book of Ruth. You know what the book of Ruth is about? One little family. No big stories of kings and rulers and judges. They don't, they don't mention any. They don't even place it. He stripped the, the, the narrator stripped us of all those details because he wants us to focus on one family. Your story matters. Your family story matters. Your church family story matters. We drop all of this ink, four chapters worth, to see how God works with a single person and the person that that person knows and that person knows. Just a, 
a little community of people, your story matters. And you don't know where your faithful, sacrificial love is going to be penciled into the storyline of God. You don't know where it's going to end. The narrator, we'll see in chapter 4, we know where the narrator thinks this story ends. Not even the narrator of Ruth knows where that story ends. It is far richer and more beautiful than anything they had imagined. They think it's going to end with King David. It's not. It's going to end in Messiah. And not just the Savior of the Jewish people, but Savior of the world. This story, this narrative, this one birthed and dripping with pain and heartache is going to end in the most glorious of places. You see, the suffering and heartache, it isn't going to be the last story of your life. It isn't. We've already been assured of that because there is bread once more in the house of bread. There is bread once more. The storyline, the hope, the scandal of, of the book of Judges and the nation of Moab, all of that is being undone. It's all being unwritten by you. By your storyline, by the followers of Jesus. Ruth, she moved toward suffering. She moved toward risk. She moved toward the, she moved away from common sense. And she moved toward sacrificial love, toward faithfulness, toward loyalty, toward chesed. That's what we're called to. Years later, centuries later, there's going to be another person who's going to leave the comforts of heaven, hashtag ultimately blessed, and he is going to come here. And how is he going to purchase redemption? Through risk and suffering and heartache, and the cross. He's following in the footsteps of Ruth, who with sacrificial love and with chesed, he does what God wants. And listen, you may not know what God is doing, but we do know the God who is doing it, the trust and the faithfulness, and he's calling you to it as well. Out in your life, the details of life, what's happening, where will you live that kind of sacrificial life? What will it look like? Would you pray with me? Father, what we want, what we need is for you to so fill us with your spirit that we can live when we cannot see, when we cannot know the next stage of the story, when we don't know what the next chapter holds, Father, we're praying that you would allow us to continue to cling to you, to trust in you, that we won't return to the old ways and we won't take the safe route. But Father, we will live with great sacrificial love, with loyalty to you and to your plan and to your people and to the needs of this world. That our lives would matter for eternity because you have penciled us into this narrative in powerful ways. Lord, we want this and we want so much more. And you've promised to give us exceedingly more than we could ever hope or imagine. Father, we pray that you would make this real of us. The story of a bitter widow who thinks she's empty, finds fullness that she never imagined. Lord, that's a promise to us here today, now example of Ruth. Lord, may we live this more and more fully 
each and every day. May each person here live in these ways, Lord, according to your promises and trust in you. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the ministry of the International Christian Assembly, a ministry of AMG Spain and AMG International. For more information, please visit our website at www.rcatorrevieja.org. This audio file is not copyrighted.